Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for coming. And um, I just want to say I'm really delighted to be speaking as part of the series. And I'm also really delighted that Dashkov is being celebrated in Dublin kind of at long last. And what's lovely is that she's alongside Mariah Edgeworth in this exhibition because da um, Mariah Edgeworth actually reviewed Dashkova's posthumously published memoirs in 1840. And in a letter, she said that the memoirs did justice to the memory of a person who she said was sadly misunderstood in her lifetime and afterwards. And just before I get started as well, I just wanted to dedicate this lecture to uh, the late Dr. Michelle Lamarche-Mares. She was herself a prodigy of learning, and she was a leading scholar in 18th century Russian studies, and she made significant contributions to the study of Dashkova and Dashkova's cultural milieu, and she's greatly missed. So never would the finest piece of jewellery have given me as much pleasure as a book. So said a young woman in St. Petersburg in the 1850s. And she was a willful young woman, by all accounts, who refused to wear the whalebone corset, you know, that everyone else, all her contemporaries were wearing. She said it strangled her mind as well as her body. And her refusal to conform, to be docile, to submit to the norms of the day, marked her early entry into the life of the mind, focusing on learning rather than on society. She dreamt of entering the public world that her brothers inhabited, the world of traveling, of learning, of working in public service. And this young woman would later be admired by Benjamin Franklin for her espousal of Enlightenment ideals, and indeed the admiration was mutual. She would become the director of the Imperial Russian Academy and the Imperial Academy of Sciences in St. Petersburg in, 18, in 1783 to 94. And she performed these two roles with energy, innovation, um, and physical rigor at a time of flowering for Russian scholarship in the sciences and in the context of the territorial expansion of the Russian Empire to the east and to the south. And her appointment really ushered in a new era for the Russian academies. She was also the first woman member, it's worth placing her in, in her international context, as the first woman member of the American Philosophical Society, as a member of the Berlin Natural History Society and the Royal Stockholm Academy. And she was elected the first woman honorary member of this institution, the Royal Irish Academy, in 1791. And despite all of these accolades that she amassed in her own lifetime, she's still not as well known or well remembered as she deserves to be, in my view, and especially not in the English-speaking world. So Princess Yekaterina Romanovna Dashkova's life is an early example of what it was like for a woman to be successful in a male-dominated world. As one of her chief biographers, Alexander Voronsov Dashkov notes, Quote, she was exceptional and different, mostly because the choices available to her were more representative of a man's life. And I think there's some truth in Voronsov Dashkov's assessment there. And in the rigid patriarchy of 18th century Russia, Dashkova certainly was a rarity. Her noble birth gave her access to education, but most of that was self-directed. And from the tragedy of her early widowhood at just the age of 20, she created a new life she cannily used her networks and contacts at home in Russia and abroad to create an international public profile. And it's 
in that vein, in that way that she's commemorated in a public monument in St. Petersburg that was erected in the late 19th century that's pictured here. It's actually a memorial to Catherine II, also known as Catherine the Great, but um, seated around her feet are a number of Enlightenment figures that she was associated with, and Dashkova there on uh, your right is one of those figures, really pictured there in her prime. So Dashkova's life divides into four kind of distinct periods, her early life and her marriage, which was at a very early age, her overseas travels, her time at, as director of the academies, and then what we might call her retirement in her later years. So I'm going to use those four um, kind of sections of her life to structure this talk. So we'll look first um, at her early life and her very young marriage. She was born in St. Petersburg on the 17th of March, 1743 in the city that symbolized Peter the Great's efforts to Europeanize Russian life. And one of Peter the Great's major contributions to the shape of 18th century Russia was his edict that imperial, um, imperial succession was at the choice of the reigning monarch. So this broke the former system of primogeniture. And this led to the unique situation whereby 18th century Russia was ruled for the most part by women. And one of those women was, of course, Empress Elizabeth I, who stood as Dashkova's godmother. And Dashkova always maintained that Elizabeth had agreed to perform this function because the Empress and Dashkova's mother were close friends. She kind of denied that it was the result of the political ties that her family had. And her uncle had recently married a first cousin of the Empress. But it's really important to note that her family, the Vorontsovs, had for 300 years enjoyed distinction in Russian public life and had occupied key and very senior military and political offices. So the family was very well connected. Looking at Dashkova herself in her early years, she was, by her own admission, a very bookish child and quite retiring. By the time she was a teenager, she had amassed a library of 900 volumes and could speak to a greater or lesser degree English, French, German, Italian and Russian. This is by the time she's around 15 years of age and this is mostly self-directed learning. Now this linguistic capacity was fairly common among the Russian nobility of the 18th century and was an important indicator of social status. So like many noble Russian families of the period, Dashkova's family would have spoken French at home and a lot of her personal correspondence was in French as well. And in her memoirs later on, when she reflected on her youth, she said that she, quote, learned Russian as I would a foreign language. And she says that she learned Russian in order to be able to communicate with her in-laws after her marriage, because they um, mostly spoke Russian. But Michelle Lamarche-Marès found when she um, performed an important study of language in uh, noble families in Russia, that Dashkova's statement about learning Russian as a foreign language actually veils the complex role that languages had in the familial and wider social networks and that Dashkova was actually, in reality, regularly exposed to Russian conversation and correspondence. And it might seem I'm belaboring this point a little bit, but it's really important when we come to think of her role um, in the Russian Academy and as the head of the first Russian dictionary. So I'll come back to that a little bit later on. 
In February 1759, at just 16, Dashkova married Prince Mikhail Dashkov. Now, she defied convention by arranging this marriage herself. And it's kind of surprising to me that she would have chosen such a partner. He had been barred from most of the noble houses in St. Petersburg for some never um, described but clearly uh, unforgivable indiscretion. And he'd had an affair with a cousin of Dashkova's as well. So I'm not qu quite sure on what basis she made her choice. But from the time of her marriage, Dashkova mostly divided her time between Moscow and St. Petersburg and their rural estates at Trotskoy, which is about 500 kilometers west of Moscow. Now, sadly, her husband died in 1764. So this leaves her a 20-year-old widow with two very small children. A third had died in infancy. And worst of all, his massive gambling debts. And sadly, it's described in her memoirs in quite a terse way um, how her mother-in-law disposed of the family home, leaving Dashkova and her two small children to live in what Dashkova describes as a derelict timber house on a plot of land in St. Petersburg. So that's the early part of, of Dashkova's life. And she overcomes those early trials so that by the 1760s, she's kind of regained enough confidence and energy to organize a series of travels around Central and Eastern Europe. And her main motivation for this, she explains in her memoirs, is in the hope that the change of air away from the kind of pestilential swamps of St. Petersburg would benefit her children's health, but also benefit their education. And in the 1770s, she makes two further tours of Europe and she travels all over. She visits Britain and Ireland, France, Germany, Holland, Italy and Switzerland. And during this tour in the 1770s, she gets to know the likes of Diderot, Benjamin Franklin, Adam Smith, Voltaire. And she doesn't just meet these people, she creates lasting intellectual relationships with them and she continues to correspond with many of them afterwards. But what's really interesting to me about this period of travel in the 1770s is a connection that she makes in the tiny mountain town of Spa in what's now Belgium in summer 1770. And this is when she meets an Irish woman named Catherine Hamilton. And Hamilton was the daughter of John Ryder at the time he was the Archbishop of Tume. And Hamilton was also related to an Anglo-Irish family named the Wilmots, and that name may be significant to some of you, and if not, you will find out why in a little while. So Catherine Hamilton uh, later introduced Dashkova to the Wilmot family during her residences in Scotland, England and Ireland in the late 1770s. And you can see on the slide, and I hope that it's legible to people sitting further down the back, the arrival of Dashkova and Catherine Hamilton in Spa in summer 1770. And this is from a little publication that used to come out every year. It was published by, um, as I can gather, the local business people in Spa because they were so keen to promote their little town as a destination for the kind of great and the good, the European elite. So they used to publish this Liste des Seigneurs Dames, um, the lists of uh, ladies and gentlemen who have come to Spa to kind of say, oh, look at the great and the good who are coming here. And that's available online for anyone to, who's interested in having a browse. It's tremendously interesting. So the top extract there is the arrival of the Archbishop of Tume, 
um, with Madame Hamilton, who's his daughter, that's her married name. And then the second extract there is the arrival of Dashkova, but she's actually travelling under the name Madame de Mikhailkov. And you can exercise your mind a little bit and wonder, is that a modesty thing? You know, I don't want to attract attention by arriving with my well-known name Dashkova, or do I think myself so famous that I need to travel under a pseudonym? We're not sure which it is. Dashkova's memoirs later described the little mountain town of Spa as, quote, a place of most delightful recollections because of the friendships that she forged there. So she wrote that her friendship with Catherine Hamilton in particular, quote, stood the test of time and absence and all human casualties for five and 30 years. And I think that's a really lovely description of a long friendship. And Ashkova is recorded as having named one of her villages Gamiltonovka after Catherine Hamilton and as a testimony to their lasting friendship. And in her memoirs, she delighted in recollecting the progress that she made in the English language with the assistance of her Anglo-Irish friends and the trips that she made to France and Switzerland with Hamilton later in 1770 and their reunion again at Spa five years later. And that was an engagement they made in 1770 and kept. It's also during this period that Dashkova came to know Benjamin Franklin in Paris in 1781. And it's largely as a result of their meeting face to face in Paris that Dashkiva becomes elected the first woman member of the American Philosophical Society in 1789. And in turn, Franklin was made the first American member of the Russian Academy. So there's a lovely reciprocity there in their relationship. Now it's, it's worth kind of just considering for a moment where their interests in each other lay. It's been suggested that as leader of the rebellious Amer American colonies, that Franklin's interest in Dashkova may have been prompted by the role she played in Catherine the Great's coup of 1762 that overthrew her husband. And that same man was also Dashkova's own godfather. Dashkova was just 19 at the time. Franklin may have also been interested in her because of the stir she generated amongst the blue stocking circles of England uh, during her residence in London. And she's pictured here in a portrait taken by the, a Russian artist in Britain in 1777 with a very praiseworthy caption. It says, Her Highness the Princess of Dashkov, polite as all her life in courts had been, yet good as she the world had never seen. So Dashkiva spent a lot of time in Western Europe in the period 1775 to 82, and this is for the sake of her son's education, which he completed at Edinburgh. And it's just worth noting that the wealthiest Russian families at this time educated their sons at Oxbridge, Edinburgh, or Glasgow, and that the lower nobility would have gone off instead to serve the embassy or the navy or the church. And her son, Pavel, um, at this time, becomes the first Russian to graduate from Edinburgh with a master's degree. And uh, the poor young fellow had barely completed his course of study there at Edinburgh when he's whisked off to Dublin, where the family stay for a whole year. And Dashkova's time in Dublin is something that's not very widely known about. In Dublin, we know that she provided Pavel with masters of French, of dancing, of Italian, Greek, and Latin, 
so that, in her own words, his days were fully occupied in useful pursuits. And during their year's residence in Dublin, Dashkova made some really interesting connections. She became more closely connected with the Wilmot family, who were so important later on, and I will say more about, but also with the Irish philanthropist in blue stocking, Lady Arabella Denny, and her name would probably be familiar to most people here. And Dashkova's original journal of her year in Ireland is sadly lost, but there are brief recollections in her later memoirs where she described her year in Ireland as a happy dream which lasted a whole year. So it really was a precious time in her life. Um, and while she was in Dublin, she often visited Parliament. She enjoyed listening to Grattan speak. And on one occasion, Arabella Denny prevailed on Dashkova to compose a piece for four voices that was performed in a Dublin church. And I think I need to do a little bit more scouring of Dublin's newspapers to find out whether that actually did uh, take place. So she travelled quite a bit around Ireland during her time here. She visited the Giant's Causeway and Kilkenny, Killarney, Cork and Limerick. And also um, during her time here, um, she's placed by Frances Wheatley, and we don't know whether she was actually there. This is Frances Wheatley's famous painting of the Dublin Volunteers in College Green in 1779. I'm just going to zoom in a little bit there. Um, there's a woman portrayed looking out the window, wearing a red ribbon of an order, and that's the portrait that's used in the exhibition here also portrays her wearing that ribbon. And she's um, holding a parasol or having one held for her. This is probably Dashkova, according to a key to the painting that's published later. And she was in Dublin in November 79, but we don't know for certain that she actually witnessed the parade. But I think the fact that Wheatley has included her in this painting and that she's named in the key is an indication of what an important kind of social event her residence in Dublin was. So overall, um, just before I move on to the third part of her life, and that is her time as director of the academies, I just wanted to say that travel played an important role in her life not just a means of escape from the gathering clouds of disfavour at the Russian court, but also as a means of gaining the international respect and recognition that she so clearly craved. And then after her return to Russia, she really, um, you really see this, this period of travel as a rebirth, because after her return to Russia, she has shed the, the persona of a former lady-in-waiting, and she has um, gained this new role that's much more fitting, I think, to her personality and her ambitions, and that is manager of her estates, correspondent with the greatest thinkers of the age, and leading Russian academic. So I'll move on now to think about that period in her life, her time at the head of Russian academies. So after her return from her extended travels in Europe, Catherine II appoints Dashkova as director of the Academy of Sciences. Now, the Academy of Sciences has been, had been founded by Peter the Great as part of his modernization program for his country. And the president of the Academy of Sciences during Catherine the Great's reign was nominally uh, a gentleman named Razimovsky. But he was on record as having paid little to no attention to the day-to-day -day running of the institution. The institution was kind of suffering from neglect. And this is why Catherine the Great saw the need to appoint a more effective director who would be much more hands-on in a day-to-day -day manner. So Dashkova at this point is, 
She's clearly well-educated, she's well-traveled, and she's acquainted with many of the great European thinkers of the age. So she's a kind of an obvious choice and she's very well suited to the role. So this portrait of 1784, it's one of my favorite portraits of her. It shows her as this kind of loyal Catherineian subject. She's wearing the Russian court dress of a lady in waiting, but across her bodice hangs the order of St. Catherine and the star of the order is pinned to her gown. And right beside that is a diamond studded lady in waiting pin of a miniature portrait of the Empress. So she's really portrayed here as a loyal kind of public servant. And when she was appointed director of the Russian Academy of Sciences, this made her the first woman in the world to hold such a position. And she was the first woman in Russia to ever hold a public appointment. On being sworn in as director of the Academy, she addressed the senators on the matter of what she called this unusual event, the appearance of a woman in your august sanctuary. Now, later in the same year, she was also made head of the Imperial Academy of the Russian language. And there, really, her big legacy was that she was the driving force behind the publication of the first ever serious uh, lexicographical Russian dictionary. And that was published in six volumes in 1789 to 94. 620 copies were printed, and it was the result of a large team effort with some of Russia's most famous literary figures of the age scouring the language's literary heritage, looking for words. And as director of the project and of the academy, Dashkova's name appears at the top of a list of male luminaries, and I've highlighted it in the section of that uh, credits page there where her name appears. All of these male luminaries that are credited there, her name appears first, and they were all members of the academy, they were contributors to the project, and her name at top of the list and her description afterwards is Statsdama, Stateswoman. Now, I haven't found any copies of this dictionary in any Irish libraries, um, but there are first editions in several British repositories. So it's worth suggesting that her name is becoming known um, in the in kind of um, philological circles internationally. And what's interesting to note about the foundation of the um, new Academy for the Russian language is that the idea was at first suggested to Catherine the Great by Dashkova. And Dashkov actually drew up the initial outline and charter for the institution. And her charter stated, quote, the Academy's goal is the purification and enrichment of the Russian language. And that really is kind of her manifesto for the next few years. She becomes an avid proponent of the Russian language. She emphasizes the importance of teaching it to the Russian youth. And in a 1783 essay, she wrote, I quote, Tanyushka, meaning any young Russian woman, would be a better wife, mother and lady if she were taught in her own native language instead of learning a foreign one badly, and if she loved her native land instead of disdaining it. So in Dashkova's view, young women who learned Russian were more likely to embody desirable characteristics, things like to be more respectful of their parents, to reject immodesty and frivolity. 
And this is just one instance where Dashkova is seen to advocate traditional gender roles for young men and women. And her rigidity in this view is so striking when we remember that she dressed as a man to accompany Catherine II to review the troops in 1762. And she really enjoyed kind of taking on those sorts of roles, but she was unwilling to extend such freedom to others. Now, during her time at the head of the Russian Academy, it's not the case that she became completely opposed to the learning of French or German or other foreign languages. But she instead advocated that these foreign languages be taught seriously by Russian or German instructors with a view to developing the personal qualities and characteristics that she felt these teachers would instill in their students. Much of her official academy correspondence continued to be composed in French. And indeed, the extent of Russian noble dependence on the French language may have traditionally been overstated by historians, with evidence showing that those who were most likely to correspond in French were those who spent significant periods of time abroad, which makes perfect sense. And even then, the trend emerges more towards the end of the 18th century. And I'm dwelling on these cultural contexts to do with the use of language in 18th century Russia because it's against this backdrop that Dashkova begins her pioneering work on the first Russian dictionary. And in the wider context, um, there's a wider European intellectual concern about national identities. There are fears being expressed that educated Europeans have become alienated from their so-called native cultures. And this is all about identifying what was often referred to as the spirit of the nation. And these ideas informed the writings of antiquaries, travelers, literary uh, figures, and philologists all over Europe. So Dashkiva's work is very much part of that wider European context. Now, just to say a little bit about how she ran the academies. And um, again, just this contemporary portrait um, the caption underneath what I think is quite an unflattering portrait of her actually um, lists the academies of which she's director and of which she's a member. Now, uh, Michael Gordon has argued that Dashkova's tenure as director of the Russian academies was an era in which the way that Russian natural history was conducted was completely transformed because her leadership style separated academic inquiry from the administrative work necessary uh, in the running of the academy. So this marked a, a gradual step in the slow process of professionalization of the sciences. And again, this happens against an international um, backdrop. This is the slow transformation of what was called natural philosophy into what we now call science. So Dashkova, as an administrator, only interfered with the work of the researchers in exceptional circumstances. So she confined herself to the efficient running of the institutions. So um, the evidence for that is that under her leadership, the Russian Academy of Sciences went from being in a state of near financial ruin uh, to being one of the most prosperous academies in Europe in the period. So immediately on taking over directorship of the Academy of Sciences, she instituted a series of reforms, most notably in relation to the institution's internal financial structures. And with the result that by the time of her retirement in 1794, 
the Academy Printing House was actually a profit-making enterprise. And um, part of how she did that was she increased the price of, of the volumes by 30%. And the extra funds were then channeled into improving the laboratories and the botanic gardens and so on. During this period, she's also found independently in her own right to be publishing translations of the works of Hume and Voltaire. She's publishing articles on education, agriculture, travel, the influence of French culture in Russia. She's making uh, speeches, she's publishing papers, plays and poetry. And many of these works were published under her pen name, Rosyanka, or Russian woman. She was also one of the first Russian women to work professionally as an editor. And she was interested in the natural sciences, especially horticulture and mineralogy. And um, just one nice example there is her bequeathing of her rich mineralogical collection to Moscow University. And true to the norms of the age, she collected and transcribed Russian folk music. So it's an extremely busy and prolific time for her um, in her intellectual life. And I'd just like to say a few words now about her election to um, as honorary member of the Royal Irish Academy. It took the Academy about 150 years, I think, to allow women membership on the same terms as men. But it did confer honorary membership on the women who were being celebrated in this important exhibition between 1791 and 1876. And Dashkova was the first of these. And her election resulted possibly, it, we can't be sure, um, from the connections that she made in Dublin during her residence here in 1779 to 80. I think it's worth suggesting. Now, the entry in the minutes, um, which I have on the screen, flatly states that she was duly balloted and unanimously elected. And I just want to thank Sophie Evans in the library for digging that reference out for me. Now, I haven't yet been able to find out who nominated her or um, precisely where the idea uh, to nominate her as honorary MRIA came from, but that may yet emerge. And again, I'm not sure whether this was before or after her honorary membership, but she did donate a volume to the Royal Irish Academy Library. And this is a large 330-page Greek and Latin volume on Virgil, published by the Russian Academy of Sciences in 1786. And it's still in the collections today. And it bears her inscription or dedication for the Dublin Royal Academy from the Princess of Dashkov. And it's just amusing to note, you may be able to see it there, the word academy is really smudged. And it's not as easy, easy to tell from the photograph, but when you're looking at the page in front of you, you can actually see that she had originally had written the word university and then had to kind of rub it out and write academy over. And I thought, you know, what a mistake to make. Perhaps she had a bundle of these to write dedications on and became confused. But I think the other thing to remember is that the academy had just been founded a year previously and may not yet have established its reputation. So she may have made a mistake and thought that it was for the university, which was that little bit better known. So I'll just go on now to the fourth kind of part of her life, her retirement. And in some ways, for me, this is the most interesting part of her life. So Catherine II or Catherine the Great died in 1796. And sadly for Dashkova was succeeded by her son, Paul. 
Now, he resented Dashkova greatly for the role that she played in the coup that overthrew his father in 1762. He was still holding a grudge. So he exiled Dashkova for a year to a village 500 kilometers north of Moscow. And Dashkova is pictured here, um, her portrait taken during that period of exile in the simple wooden hut. Um, it's described in her memoirs as a two-roomed hut. And she occupied that with an English friend who we know only as Miss Bates. And I would love to know more about that English friend. And just to really emphasize how difficult this period of exile was for her, at the time she was 53 years of age, which isn't old, but she'd had a very full and tumultuous life already at this point, and her health wasn't the best. She was plagued by a few persistent ailments, including sciatica, so she was frequently in a lot of pain. And even the journey to get to this remote location was tremendously taxing for her and for her English friend who traveled with her. So they describe in them, and she describes in the memoirs, how they subsisted, subsisted for days on this kind of grueling, winter journey on cubes of cabbage soup that were frozen and they had to kind of boil them down to melt them and that's what they ate and they both suffered from really um horrible stomach complaints for the duration of the journey and kind of you often read it in 18th century travels how people kind of almost feel shaken to their bones and their internal organs become kind of disturbed by the shaking of the carriages or in this case the sled so this period of exile is really really difficult for her so um, after a year, her pleas to be allowed back home are finally answered and she's permitted to leave her exile. And then in 1801, Paul, um, Tsar Paul himself, was assassinated in a coup and was succeeded by his son, Alexander I. And there's a glimmer here of Dashkova's potential for political rehabilitation because she's invited to attend the coronation ceremony. But she never really does become fully rehabilitated into Russian public life after this point. And really, from the 1790s onwards, Dashkova's life was the business of sharing her stories, writing her memoirs, and running her estates. Now, um, a really big kind of turning point comes in these latter years of Dashkova's life, in summer 1803 with the arrival of an Anglo-Irish woman who was born in Cork named Martha Wilmot. And you might remember that I mentioned earlier on that the Wilmots were cousins of Catherine Hamilton, with whom Dashkova had formed such um, a lovely close friendship in Spa in the 1770s. So Martha arrives at Dashkova's rural estate in summer 1803 and is followed two years later by her sister Catherine, and they spend a combined eight years living with Dashkova on her rural estate. And they're avid letter writers and diarists. So they keep detailed records of what life is like on the estate and their visits to Moscow for the winter social season. So their papers and letters are an absolutely essential and unique account to understanding Dashkova's later life. They knew her when her star was in decline and the ever insightful Catherine watched the care with which Dashkova ran her estates and really astutely noted that Dashkova was, quote, born for business on a large scale. She could see how the lack of something to do and the lack of intellectual pursuits would kind of, you know, spell the end for this person. And I just want to say, as, as an aside, while you're looking at the portraits, let's note the laziness of the Italian painter who made these portraits 
in Russia while the Wilmots were there. Um, my sense is looking at them that he's basically just changed the hair and the clothing. Um, the faces are so so uncannily alike that even for sisters it seems improbable. That's my feeling on the on the portrait artist. The Wilmots not only give us really important accounts of rural Russian life in the early 19th century, but they make a huge contribution to European women's history because in 1805 Dashkova accedes to their repeated requests and agrees to write her memoirs. This was something that she had until then resisted doing. And the memoirs themselves have a really interest in history and they're recognized as amongst the finest Russian memoirs, certainly of the 18th and 19th century and possibly um, of the entire imperial um, Russian period. So with the Wilmot's persistence and kind of encouragement, Dashkova wrote her recollections of her life in French and Martha and Catherine Wilmot simultaneously made English translations. And what's really fortunate for historians and posterity is that when Catherine Wilmot left Russia in 1807, she left because the Napoleonic Wars meant that relations between Britain and Russia were very strained. So it was, it was thought kind of um, diligent to return to Britain. Catherine brought her manuscript copy of, of, of Dashkova's memoirs with her on the ship. And this is really fortunate um, because when Martha leaves in 1808, she's forced to burn her copy because she has become an object of government suspicion as a British citizen in Russia at a time when the two countries are at war. So if it weren't for Catherine Wilmot's foresight in bringing her manuscript, Dashkova's precious memoirs may not have survived for us today. And it's from Catherine's copy that Martha published her edition of the memoirs in 1840. And why did it take until 1840 for the memoirs to be published? Well, Dashkova, in the first place, gave Martha Wilmot charge of the manuscript on the condition that it wouldn't be published until after her death. Now, Dashkova dies in 1810. But the potential for controversy in their contents was seen to be such that three years after Dashkova's death, her brother, Simon, writes to Martha Wilmot. He enters a bit of a hostile correspondence with her and he demands that she wait another 30 years before publishing. And those letters are in um, the academy here today. Now, Simon dies in 1832, but Martha Wilmot still waits another eight years before publishing the much anticipated manuscript. And her editorial introduction does refer to these circumstances. She refers to a near relative of Dashkov as having feelings unfavorable to their publication. So just to think a little bit about the memoirs themselves for a moment, because they are really interesting and very important. Further to any personal motives of friendship to the Wilmots or acceding to their kind of pestering that she complete this project, the historian Marcus Levitt reminds us that the memoirs were written at a time when Dashkova's reputation was really in eclipse and was an attempt to rescue her public image from misrepresentation or from oblivion. So he finds the memoirs a triple defense of Catherine II, of Russian Enlightenment culture, and of Dashkova's own historical role. And indeed, Dashkova's early proximity to Catherine the Great had tarnished her reputation to some degree. So vindicating the former empress 
also serves Dashk of his own interests as well. Because her exile under Paul I and the bad press that she received by association with Catherine II were something of a cloud over her later years. So her memoirs attempt to counteract this. And so too, you can look in the same way at the tales that she tells the Wilmots while they're living with her, tales of the court and its personalities, emphasizing her past glories and her proximity to power previously. And the frontispiece to the volume um, that I've got up here, and again, apologies that it's not of better quality, portrays Dashkova really at the height of um, her powers politically and in terms of Russian civic and public life. So Dashkova's later years passed in contrast to her youth in remote privacy, far from public life. And these laters, later years are completely inadequately accounted for in the memoirs. So this is where you turn to the Wilmot papers and their account of her life during this time. And the Wilmots themselves felt that Dashkova skimmed over those years in her memoirs. Martha wrote in the preface to the volume that Dashkova got tired and hurried off the work. And I don't think this is surprising, given the complete reversal of fortune that she suffered and the torment of her family problems at the time. So Martha and Catherine Wilmot's diaries and letters record five years of Dashkova's whims and fancies, her sickness and health, her beliefs and her thoughts, and her regrets indeed. So they portray Dashkova effectively living in exile, even if not officially so, burdened by the weighty regrets of her eventful life, but in command of her own world, and that is the command of her extensive estates. And indeed, the world of Martha Wilmot herself. Martha described herself as a prisoner of Dashkova's friendship. Such was the bond that the two women forged, um, this almost kind of mother-daughter relationship, that the strength of which prevented Martha Wilmot from going back to Ireland, even though war made her presence in Russia um, something of a great personal risk. And it's perhaps in this portrayal um, in the Wilmot papers that the balance is most effectively struck between Dashkova's public and private roles as she managed her estates, composed her memoirs, and found comfort in her relationship with Wilmot. And the closeness of their relationship is evident in the little notes that they pass to each other around the palace. And there's some ex surviving examples of those in the academy today pertaining to little everyday matters. I just have two examples there. Um, the first one is a kind of a little Russian lesson from Dashkova to Martha. And the second one is just a little note saying where they're going to dine this evening and asking that Martha behave properly and not get too lazy and just speak English all the time. And she refers to her as my darling child. So. The darling child leaves Russia in October 1808, and a surviving note of Dashkova's that's in the British Library in November 1808 tells Martha, quote, I cannot last so long without speaking to my dear child, my angel, my everything. So she's heartbroken that Martha has left. And friends and acquaintances used to write to Martha and tell her um, of Dashkova's continued distress at her absence. And though Martha had vowed to return after spending an appropriate period of time with her family, she didn't manage to do so before Dashkova died in uh, Moscow in January 1810. So how can we kind of assess Dashkova? And I'm, I am kind of trying to draw to a close, I assure you. 
As pointed out by her chief biographer, Alexandra Voronsov Dashkov, Dashkova's contemporaries tended to hyperbole. So rounded assessments of her character and achievements are fairly rare. On the one hand, her academic achievements were extolled. On the other hand, her vanity and her miserliness were pilloried. It's worth noting that this may reflect the fact that she was assessed in terms of what was considered appropriate norms for female behavior. So I'll just give two illustrative instances um, that helped kind of um, shine a light on that structure. On the occasion of her rising to the presidency of the Russian Academy, the esteemed Russian poet Derjavin wrote in his private papers a little rhyme. Her looks are both a wenches and a blokes. Now, he doesn't mean just her physical appearance. He means her public role. And then secondly, in 1770, the English polyglot and poet Elizabeth Carter wrote to Elizabeth Montague, the Queen of the Blue Stockings, so-called, that she's seen Dashkova in London. And she describes her. She says, at 19, she harangued the troops and was the principal instrument of bringing about the revolution. She's now in England. She seems to be a most extraordinary genius. She rides in boots and all the other habilement of a man and all the manners and attitudes belonging to that dress. So again, there's kind of a concern with how she's kind of blurring gender boundaries. So historians as well have followed this pattern of framing Dashkova's life and personality in terms of extremes. Her memoirs comprise what Vorontsov Dashkov called a masquerade of disguises. So the Wilmot papers are really valuable in revealing her pers private persona. Catherine Wilmot concluded after two years with Dashkova that it would actually be impossible to give an accurate portrayal of the princess. She wrote, such are her peculiarities and inextricable varieties that the result would only appear like a wisp of human contradictions. And one of those key contradictions, and I'm going to finish on this point, is her defense of the institution of serfdom. So she's a great enlightenment thinker. She embraces the ideals of human dignity, freedom, the transformation of society through education, um, fighting superstition, a belief in science. And she believed as well that individual personal change could bring about wider social change. But it's interesting to note that both she and her correspondent, Ben Franklin, struggled to reconcile those enlightenment ideals of liberty with the ongoing slavery and serfdom in both of their homelands. So slavery was widely criticized naturally enough by enlightenment thinkers on moral and economic grounds. But Dashkova was one of serfdom's most eloquent defenders. And she relied heavily on 5,000 souls to help her with the running of her estates. And it's really important to note that that figure of 5,000 serfs places her in the 1% of the Russian nobility at the time. It's an extraordinary number of human chattel was not normal. Most uh, nobles would have had maybe 14 serfs in their possession. She's got 5,000. So she actually saw her, her justification for serfdom was that it was her duty to protect these poor souls from the arbitrary power of the state. And that is the defense upon which um, her implication in serfdom is built. So early biographer C. Dashkova as representative in the improvements in women's lives in Russia during the 18th century. These are taking place in tandem with wider social and political reforms in the country. 
Russia is transformed and so too is the figure of the Russian woman. And she's to the forefront of the dissemination of Enlightenment ideals in Russia, especially after her European tours. But overall, her tempestuous nature has become the stuff of legend. And one Russian writer stated that she had a talent for misfortune. Such assessments, I think, serve to perpetuate her relegation to the backdrop rather than her rightful place at the forefront of the history of European intellectual life of the 18th century. And arguably, it's her many losses and her many misfortunes in early life that drove her to pursue greatness. And a little later, when Catherine II sought to appease her former confidant by offering her a vanity position in the Russian academies, Dashkova didn't just accept that position, but she made it her own and carved out a place for herself, ensuring her lasting legacy, not just as the first woman head of an academy, but as one of the most effective and influential heads of any academy of Enlightenment Europe. So I'll leave it there. Thanks very much for your attention.